Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Happy holidays and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. On July 25th of this year, we published an interview with Jakob Mushingama. In that interview, we discussed a Cato Institute essay series about the state of free speech internationally. You might recall that Jakob wrote the lead essay for the series, and in it he wondered whether the world's centuries-long march toward freedom of expression has halted as free and unfree states across the world are in the process of copying one another's restrictions on expressive freedoms. Reading Jakob's essay, it is clear he is a strong supporter of free speech. But not everyone in Cato's essay series agreed with Jakob's take. Among them is our guest on today's show, Anthony Leaker. Anthony is a principal lecturer in cultural and critical theory at the University of Brighton in the UK. And Anthony believes that Jakob's argument amounts more or less to free speech alarmism, and that its claims of a recent free speech crisis are mythical. He is skeptical of the free speech narrative generally, and titled his essay, Against Free Speech, with free speech being in quotation marks or inverted commas as they refer to them in the UK, and Anthony refers to them actually at the beginning of this episode. Anthony sees our current free speech narrative as a sort of Trojan horse for the far right wing and for fascist propaganda. And to the extent that there are purported victims of any free speech deprivations, they are the powerful, not the persecuted. In that sense, Anthony doesn't see the narrative surrounding free speech being used as a liberating force against oppression, at least not in the West. Jakob responded to Anthony in the essay series and on our podcast in July, but I've been wanting to have Anthony on the show for quite a while to discuss his perspective. But he was working on a book, also called Against Free Speech, and that book was originally set for publication this past November, so I held off until the book hit bookshelves. Unfortunately, the book's publication was pushed back a little while until next year, as is often the case with books. But in any case, Anthony agreed to come on the show in advance of the book's publication, and so here we are. This is one of those deep dive podcasts. Anthony and I have two very different perspectives on how free speech is discussed and protected across the world today, and those differences are on full display here. Uh, but in any case, I think you might be surprised to find that there is actually much that Anthony and I agree upon. I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. So, now, on to the show. So, Anthony Leaker, thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for inviting me. So, you and your essay for the Cato Institute say that you are against free speech, and you have a book coming out that I'm assuming will be an expansion of this essay. And I just wanted to begin this conversation by exploring what it actually means to be against free speech and your conception of it. Yeah, so I should clarify that I would like to be against free speech in inverted commas, um, because I think to be against free speech in itself is impossible or, or stupid or idiotic as as it doesn't, it, I mean, or self-defeating. Uh, there are many, many ways of challenging the notion of being against free speech. So firstly, I should say that as a title, it is 
polemical. Of course. But I, but, but I, do, I, I do have a, set, a whole set of arguments that I'll try and um, outline. Um, but so against free speech in adverted commas, I realize that's quite a kind of irritating um, postmodern slash post-structuralist gesture to put things in adverted spe- uh, commas uh, or quotation marks. But what I mean by that is that free speech today or now or in the last three or four years has become so fetishized or so um, narrativized or misused that it's become an ideological tool that uh, is becoming increasingly removed from uh, its true ideal. Uh, And so that's really what I want to argue against, is against the way in which free speech is being used. Um, Having said that, I do think there are some useful arguments to be made against free speech as a principle, because I think the invocation of principle is a means of evading looking at some of the practical circumstances or consequences of the way free speech is used. So every time free speech is invoked as a principle, it is a deflection away from talking about the particular issues. So I do think that principles themselves, liberal democratic principles, need to be interrogated. Yeah, one of the things that I was very interested in talking with you about after reading your essay is whether you just dislike the cultural discourse surrounding free speech, or are you actually in favor of implementing stronger regimes of censorship and speech codes, or is it a little bit of both? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I haven't. This is going to sound evasive. I mean, I'm not against speech codes, but more importantly, I think that they already exist. And not only the ones that are seemingly egregious or outrageous or these kind of 60 page documents that university has, universities, for example, have with all of these different uh, codes and guidelines and rules. Um, I can see precisely why, you know, at fire or or spiked online or other organizations uh, would be against those they can seem absurd but what i would like to argue for is a recognition that language in all contexts whether in a university or in business or in the media is already deeply coded and policed and you know that censorship if you like operates in all areas all the time and there doesn't seem to be that much recognition uh, of that in the dominant discourse around free speech that i read coming in from the mainstream press Um, there's this kind of assumption that free speech is a sort of straightforward ideal or principle or set of practices and i don't think it is i think all contexts uh, imply a set of rules and codes, and most importantly, power structures. So I wouldn't really want to get drawn into saying I'm in favor of speech codes or censorship or hate speech laws, because I think I would want to take that on a case-by-case basis. There's there's one thing that you do in your essay uh, in describing free speech. You say it's often used today by some free speech advocates as a Trojan horse as cover for some of their more retrograde ideas. You say free speech crisis is a self-serving myth manufactured or at least capitalized on by people like 
Tommy Robinson, Gert Wilders. I'm assuming you would also lump people like Richard Spencer and Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. into that cat- category. And in those cases, you know, I, I think I'm sympathetic to your argument. It does seem as though they have gotten immense criticism for their ideas mm. and they have seized upon the cultural capital that free speech has to say, this is a debate about free speech, not my ideas. Mm. But at the same time, I do think their critics give them that argument by actually censoring them in certain cases. For example, Tommy Robinson speaks at Columbia University and his speech is shouted down and he's not actually able to give the speech. So I do think he has an argument there and it distracts from what otherwise would be a conversation by their, about their ideas. Do you not, do you not, agree with that i don't know why tommy robinson was ever fired at columbia university uh you know so to that extent uh, you know by all means put me in the in the disinvitation camp i i how did it come about that these people i don't i don't think 10 years ago tommy robinson would have had the kind of profile he has today and and, I, and for our listeners in america can you just kind of describe who tommy robinson is he is, uh, well, he's most known for being kind of critical, you know, at best being, you know, in, in friendly terms, it being critical of Islam, but in my view, being Islamophobic. But he was a member of a group called the English Defence League. He's now in UKIP, which is the UK Independence Party, which was instrumental in uh, bringing Brexit around about. It was kind of quite successful as a fringe political party up until about two years ago um it's now not doing so well uh but yeah he's he's sort of um he is uh, richard spencer isn't a bad equivalent um he's a spokesperson for various political organizations nearly all on the right if not on the far right um and yeah most famously he has been arrested a couple of times i believe for contempt of court which is potentially damaging a, a court case against uh, a group of men who are accused of prostitution, I believe. So do you draw a distinction then between what speech should be allowed in a university context and what speech should be policed in broader society by, say, the government? And it's in the United States, uh, and I'm not quite as familiar with the system overseas, but in the United States, a lot of public universities are a functionary of the government, so they're bound by the First Amendment. Mm. But how do you how do you think about that distinction? I I again I would want to say can we just have some recognition of the way in which language is policed all the time, the way in which language or conversations or views and opinions are framed and structured and conditioned by a whole set of unwritten codes, conventions, rules. And usually, and this is going to come across as a generalization, but usually I would say in most of these circumstances, they privilege white, straight men. And I would say the university is no different to that. I think the university is structured in such a way, and that could be the seminar space or uh, lecturing in a, in a set of ways that have a history. You know, university teaching, university courses, university outlines, university hierarchies have a history and they have traditionally privileged a certain form of individual and that obfuscates their gender and their race and their class but these are uh, white middle class straight men and so I am in favor of trying to challenge 
that. But I'm not in favour of kind of giving. I mean, this is where I kind of agree with with you probably. I mean, I don't I don't think the solution is to empower the government. I don't think the government um, is the ideal solution. I mean, this is t- this is where I wouldn't be in favour of censorship or I wouldn't be in favour of legal redress i mean I, I ideally i would like to change the kind of conversation i mean in just can i just quickly mention i mean i listened to jonathan Haight on your podcast i think it was a month or two ago where it was the panel discussion around is there a free speech crisis at, yes. on the universities and there was andrew sullivan and and uh andrew sex i believe and and susan nozzle yeah. uh, and jonathan Haight said yeah he said the most important thing i'm paraphrasing and he might correct me, but he said, we need to think about the narratives. And he presented three different narratives. He said, you know, we can look at data and we can think about surveys, but what's most important are the narratives. And that, and that, I actually disagree with almost everything Jonathan Haidt has written about free speech, but that I agree with him. The, 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 the crucial thing here are the narratives. I, and I was quite surprised to hear him say that because that's the kind of thing that a, a cultural theory lecturer like myself would say that what matters here are narratives of the stories that are being heard you know it's these constructions and in, in my view these you know these lead to kind of myths um and the narrative of free speech being under threat at university is what i would want to challenge well yeah i guess the impasse that i have in understanding that argument is challenged in what way i mean we can we can talk about how speech should be viewed but if it doesn't actually lead to any cultural changes, uh, either legal or otherwise, what are we actually looking to accomplish in this case? Well, say a student of color objects to, I don't know, a given text or something that was said in university or a given... I mean, I, you, you would be more familiar with some of the controversies that have taken place in the States than I, I would around race. But generally, the pattern that I witness is that there'll be an incident and the particulars of the students protesting, the particulars of their argument or their case or what they are criticizing doesn't get heard. What gets heard is that free speech is under threat in campuses. And so what I would like to see change is different voices being heard, different voices actually having the opportunity to make their critiques on major platforms so in major publications i know if you, if you really you know seek them out you can kind of find the arguments that, that in student newspapers or, or, or elsewhere that some students have you know made some really valid criticisms of of certain to their mind you know racist or sexist or transphobic practices and they seem like very convincing arguments to me, but they very rarely get heard. They, what happens is that free speech gets invoked and it's it's a kind of deflection. It's a deflection away from the particulars of the argument. And you get this argument about principles and it, it's evasive. It's avoiding the particular issues that these students are raising. Can't we simultaneously try and raise those students' voices and concerns up while also standing steadfast against any calls that might be inherent in that narrative for censorship. I'm reminded of a common line uh, among the waves of student protests that occurred here in about 2015, 2016. I don't know if there was a similar wave Mm. overseas, but it was students expressing many valid concerns about the environment for racial, sexual, gender injustices on 
campus, mm -hmm. but as part of some of those demands, and you can actually go to the demands.org to see a lot of these students' demands, there were calls for explicit speech codes. Right. And the position of fire was a nuanced one that kind of gets lost in the culture war battle. It's like these students have a right to their voices. Their protests should be protected. But at the same time, to the extent that they're making any demands for censorship, those need to be stood fast against. And then, you know, of course, we always make the argument about why free speech and academic freedom and free inquiry are crucial to the mission of a university. Is it possible, you think, to do that? Or, or do you think that that's going to be a challenge? I mean, I'd like to think it's possible. I, I mean, this is complex because it's sort of partly to do with the relation between organizations like FIRE or the students themselves and the mainstream media. It is true that FIRE has a nuanced position. I mean, it is true that FIRE, you know, some of the cases you defend, uh, it seems to me, from across the spectrum, right? Of course, yeah. The, the, you, you know, if you look at the case, but the the representation of fire possibly in in the views of some or in or in certain representations that I've read is that fire is similar to someone like spiked in the UK. And I know you interviewed Brendan O'Neill on your podcast. I mean, in my view, the spiked are are provocateurs. I mean, they are just out to provoke. I don't think there's anything nuanced whatsoever about anything they do. And I think fire has rightly or wrongly been associated with them to a certain extent or is, or is associated with the kind of unsafe speech tour that took place in the States a year ago. Is that, is that true? We had, we had one person speak on one of the panels about a, a regulation in the United States uh, yeah. called Title IX. Yeah. Uh, but no, we weren't. A, a sponsor, I don't believe yeah. of that. Spiked, uh, and I and I have many friends over there. Yeah, uh, Spiked's mission is much more expansive than ours. I mean, they are yeah. involved in the Brexit discussions and a lot more cultural issues. Our our mission is very narrowly focused on the First Amendment and First Amendment values. And our position is that we agree with generally how the Supreme Court has outlined speech protections here in the United States. We think it is a sophisticated view at both um, the harms that can be coupled perhaps with speech when we're talking mm. about true threats or incitement to imminent lawless action while leaving a wide girth for participation in the democratic process, which we think requires open discourse, sometimes offensive discourse. But our cases come from across the political and ideological spectrum. We just uh, defended a professor at Rutgers University successfully who uh, criticized white gentrification in Harlem. Yeah, uh, we're at the front that. lines yeah, of- Livingston. Yeah. yeah, front lines of defending a professor at Temple University who is very critical of Israel. But at the same time, we defend strong defenders of Israel and sometimes speakers whose speech has been accused to be racist or maybe even is racist, uh, you know, will defend to the extent that a uh, university allows people to rent out space on campus. It's a public university. If Richard Spencer wants to rent out that space, we believe he has a right to do so. We also believe that students have a right to raise their voices in opposition to it uh, and that universities must protect those protests. So it's a very stick to the First Amendment approach. At private universities, it's more of a moral argument about what values a university should uphold in regard to academic freedom and free inquiry. We're not so much a cultural commentator in that sense. No. Yeah. I heard your colleague, I think, Will. Will Creeley? Yeah. I mean, he was saying, oh, this is, it annoys me the way that the, you know, fire get wrapped up in these culture wars. That's not what we're doing. We're taking, you know, just look at our casework, please. And I thought that was great. I thought he sounded great. So I, I would say on the one hand, you know, that sounds really great what fire are doing, but 
so in in practical terms you know it's really great work and and it's very very valuable that there's an organization holding universities to account and that is doing this kind of work that possibly no one else would be doing that the media wouldn't be doing or you know i can't imagine how difficult it would be individually to get legal redress for these issues so that on that on the, in practical terms i think that's great but the the philosophically it presumes neutrality right so this defense of the first amendment doesn't address structural inequality it doesn't address the power imbalance it doesn't address the fact that predominantly the people who uh, suffer the most from a fence being protected are the people who are already suffering the most because of structural and other forms of inequality, right? There's, it's just evident to me that in the United States, as in the UK, you know, there are very, very serious structural problems of racism and other forms of discrimination, sexual discrimination, gender discrimination, and that something needs to be done to address that. And that, that the argument that, well, we're, de- we're, we're defending all, uh, you know, we, we're ju- it's just neutral and we'll defend all cases. Well, that's kind of good, but is it really in the long term going to address some of the more egregious injustices that exist because of structural inequalities? Legally, I don't know how you do anything but adhere to neutral principles without at vast abuses of power. One of the things that and, and I and I know you you have more of a uh, cultural narrative concern here. Exactly. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, so I don't I don't yeah. I don't want to uh, uh, yeah. say that you're in favor of legal regimes of censorship. But one Not of the no. the confusions that occurs to me in seeing some of the protests on campus is at the same time that you are yeah. protesting against an administration, for example, a it, it could be on campus or it could be the Trump administration that abuses its power. And that allegation can be true or false. We'd have Uh to look at any individual case. But that's the allegation. At the same time, we want to give them more authority to determine this abusive authority, more authority to determine what speech should occur on campus or what speech should be privileged or unprivileged on campus. And in the United States, our appreciation for the First Amendment, at least within uh, liberal circles and I know you you are a strong critic of neoliberalism which we can get into or at least that's a suggestion from your essay I am yeah no 100% yeah but that all stems from a history uh in the United States of suppression of the voices of civil rights activists of gay rights activists of women's suffragists activists and some uh, you 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 have a Samuel Johnson quote in your essay, you said, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from slave drivers? Well, some of the loudest yelps for liberty in the United States historically for free speech have come from people like uh, Frederick Douglass, like Ida B. Wells, who wrote for the newspaper The Free Speech, uh, like Martin Luther King, like the current congressman John Lewis, who said that the civil rights movement without free speech would have been a bird without wings. So while... I'm sympathetic to a lot of what you're saying. I'm, I'm just, again, at that impasse, it's like, yes, we should be including as many voices in the process, in the conversation as possible, but we can't abandon free speech, especially in an era uh, where we're seeing, as you write in your essay, rising authoritarianism, both domestically and um, in countries outside the United States. I just don't want to give an inch on this idea of who can and cannot speak 
in a democracy. And I don't want to start that calculation of, okay, well, we need to determine just what the power imbalance might be here. You know, how, how investigate people's backgrounds, how marginalized their voice be. I, I just don't see how you conduct that analysis or construct that calculation. Well, I, yeah, I don't either. But it, I mean, I am talking about a kind of cultural set of narratives. And I am really talking about the culture war that's going on. And so I'm it seems to me that there's been such a kind of powerful set of narratives around there being a free speech crisis or both a free speech crisis on university or free speech and crisis in, in general. Or and Fires or never take... argued that, to be clear. I think you listened to the podcast in which we explicitly said we don't have a position. Yeah, yeah well, I... But, but I think it's hard for free speech advocates not to be caught up in that. So what I argued in the essay was the onus is on true defenders on free speech, right? So the onus is on you to distinguish yourself from the, from firstly the right-wing co-option of it, or not right-wing, but the far-right co-option of it, right? To, to, yes, okay, that's true about Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and that, yeah, free speech has been in the service of all sorts of very just causes, but it seems to me it's shifted right the role it's playing ideologically and the role it's playing as a as a kind of tool of critique has shifted in the last 10 or 15 years and why is that why has that occurred i mean that's one of the things i'm i'm trying to think about why how has it come about that free speech is now uh most often associated at least in the uk with these kind of demagogues or with these you know, well, it might be, and I'm just, I, I don't have any strong theory here, but it, it might be because, uh, the institutions that have, I, I guess, so you see a lot of these conversations happening on college campuses mm. and the argument is that conservatives or far right or right wing individuals or groups are censored on these campuses. And it's the left in most of these universities that have some sort of cultural hegemony, if not administrative power. And so the idea could be we're seeing allegations of censorship or even just cultural criticism that some people, we can mm. loop Milo Yiannopoulos in here, uh, that's so intense that they they feel as though it, it, it ventures almost into a free speech discussion when that's rightly or wrongly. And back, and you can maybe see this in, in the culture generally where uh, the left, broadly speaking, and I hate using those terms, seems to have a cultural stranglehold on the media, on uh, movies. If, I, if only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, that, that, that's exactly my point. We're in the middle part of the century. We look at the, the, tr the purge of alleged communists yeah. from the movie industry, yeah. and it seemed as though the right uh, the you know America firsters back then mm. held all the the wheels of power, and so the censorship was of those who didn't hold that cultural power, which was those on the left. So you're mm. seeing a shift where the left is taking not taking over the culture necessarily, but has more say in the culture, has more power in the culture, and so you're seeing the wheels of censorship turn in a different direction. Ju uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that America is nothing if not a pendulum. When it swings one way, it swings the other way. And uh -huh. my concern as someone who's kind of apolitical, 
but has has sympathies to the left, is that it will swing back the other way. And if we knock down the walls that allow for these neutral principles, we're, we're pursuing uh, expediency more than anything else. And you see this in the United States all the time right now with the removal of, uh, for example, 60 votes required to confirm a Supreme Court justice. You get rid of that, the rep- as the Republicans did for uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Great, you might get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, but there might be a moment when you're not in power. And so you want those checks and balances. And so I guess that's a long-winded way of my kind of exploration of why we might be seeing the narrative shift and we might be seeing the victims or alleged victims of censorship be more on the right than they were when Martin Luther King was marching into Selma, for example. I mean, my explanation would be, or one possible explanation, is that this all needs to be viewed in the context of the financial crash of 2007 and 2008. So you have this major, major economic disaster, which has a huge impact in the UK and the US and in the rest of the world. And then five years later, you get this, in the broadest sense, culture war, both in the UK and the US. And, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of smaller part of that is this uh, ongoing sense of free speech being in crisis or, or a narrative about free speech being in, um, in crisis, there being a free speech crisis. So what's the relationship between those things? Well, it would be pretty hard to fully establish it, but clearly there is a politics of reaction that exists that has brought about Brexit, that's brought about Trump, that brought about massive support for Le Pen in France. Um, and elsewhere across Europe, the support for these ethno-nationalist discourses or ethno-nationalist politicians, I should say, who use um, ethno-nationalist, you know, racist, if not white supremacist narratives to garner support from the so-called left behind, from these apparently uh, disempowered and disenfranchised groups of people. But what caused that disenfranchisement, right? What caused that disenfranchisement was, yes, neoliberalism and in particular the financial crisis. And so politicians are capitalizing on on this economic crisis and using culture and using cultural uh, narratives as a way of gaining support and also avoiding addressing any of the deeper structural problems, which are to do with quite extreme form of capitalism that is producing mass, mass inequality, both in the US and in the UK, where you've got an increased division between the rich, richest and the poorest, which seems to be only getting worse. So I would want to see this, this, this kind of obsession with culture as a result of a failure to address anything um, concrete with the economy. The economy hasn't changed. The economy hasn't, the economic system, if you like, hasn't changed since the financial crisis. So so where's people's at? Where where could people going to, you know, and, and liberal democracy itself has been massively undermined. Um, everything that you've kind of said in defense of free speech, in principle, I agree with. But in the concrete situation in which we both exist in the political circumstances in which uh, your vote is cast and which my vote is cast, well, it's largely, I mean, a farce is a bit too strong, but you know, we do live in a kind of post-democratic age or in an age where liberal democracies are seriously under threat, right? Where your president, I mean, I, I mean, probably if we get into talking about your president, we might never end. <laughs> but, you know, there are problems, right? There are clear threats to democracy in both in both the US and in the UK. Democracy is, is threatened. So this idea that there's this 
you know, neutral marketplace of ideas, that if we just bring all these ideas out into the sunlight and that we can have an open and free debate and the truth will out, it, it just seems remarkably naive. You know, it makes sense in John Stuart Mill, it makes sense in the seminar space that we can all sit together and we've got this established set of uh, presuppositions and guidelines that will help us, uh, um, you know, explore difficult or challenging ideas and come out and we're all interested in truth. Well, that is not how democracies are operating now. Democracies are chasing, you know, it's a politics of fear, it's a politics of race baiting, etc., etc. How, how much of the Trump election and the Brexit referendum do you think stemmed from people feeling as though they didn't have a voice except in the ballot box? For example, um, I have a lot of friends, I'm from the Midwest here in the United States, a lot of friends and family who felt like culturally they couldn't say what they actually felt. And so going to the ballot box and voting for Donald Trump was one way for them to express themselves in sort of a pr private or semi-private uh, but what sphere. is it and I, that they felt that they felt they couldn't say? What are these things? This is this is a used all the time, right? That the, there's these things that people feel they can't say. I don't know what they are. Well, in the United States, it might be certain feelings about immigration, right? Uh, in Brexit, that might also be the case. Now, I yeah, can't say even though immigration is never out of the news. This is what I don't understand. Why do they feel afraid to say these things when all? You know, it's one of the most dominant discussions in the mainstream press. Well, and the I think the argument would be, and uh, I, you know, to lay my political cards on the table here, I'm I'm a pretty open borders libertarian in that sense. Yeah. Uh, but the argument would be there is a quote correct and incorrect position on immigration, and the the narrative that you see is the one that comes from mainstream media, perhaps, and they're the ones that present the correct opinion. And because it's a left-leaning opinion th and those who hold contrary opinions are painted as racists or, or sexists on a lot of these these different issues, um, they, they just feel like, well, it's not even worth speaking up because I'm just going to get labeled something that I don't see myself as. And I saw that I, I lived in New York City at the time of the Trump election. I actually was up the night of the election it was one of the most surreal evenings of my life. I actually left my apartment at a certain point and I walked to uh, the area where all the TV stations broadcast and I walked over to NBC and you could see people crying. Then I walked a couple of blocks over and I went to Fox News and people were cheering. They were wearing their red MAGA hats. And I just it, one of the reasons it was so surreal to me because it, it painted the divide in America over two city blocks and also I lived in New York City. I didn't know a single person who voted for Trump, nonetheless, even like had any sympathies for him. But then I talked to my family back from Illinois, and they didn't know a single person who voted for Hillary Clinton. And there was this divide, and I talked to the family back there, and I said, well, why do you vote for Donald Trump? Or my friends back there, why do you vote for Donald Trump? And, and they just said, you know, he stood up to political correctness. He said a lot of the things that we felt. And you know, of course, we can have a debate whether those those feelings are justified or unjustified, but they just didn't feel as though they had a voice in the mainstream media, and so the ballot box was their only their only choice. And in that sense, I think actually democracy is working, and maybe maybe democracy doesn't doesn't um, always give us the outcomes we want. But that's you know, it's it, it's 
it's a confluence of things. And when you talk about on campus how there are certain groups, and I think in many cases justifiably, who feel they don't have a voice, I also think about those off campus, those people in middle America whose lives have been gutted, as you put it, yeah. by the financial crisis. And I think that there's actually some merit to that argument, but they don't feel like they can. And it's one of the reasons the opioid crisis is so underreported here in the United States. And you're starting to see a little bit more reporting on it. But life expectancy in the United States has dropped dramatically as a result of the opioid crisis. And you'd think there'd be more coverage of it. But so much of our cultural institutions are are centered in the coasts that there's just this divide and and it's it, it's impossible to bridge. And that's... I, I just find it hard to see why they would think their voices aren't being heard or that they're not not able to access the kind of narrative or information or opinion that they seem to think appeals to them or speaks to them, i.e. being anti-political correctness. There's been anti-political correctness going on for the last 25 years or so. I, you know, Fox News, for example. But even the notion that the New York Times or CNN or, or other um, media outlets in the States are left, I mean, that to me is laughable. They're centrists. I don't, I don't, well, so, I guess at this point, I should ask you to sort of define neoliberalism, because you would you would say they're well, they're more neoliberal institutions, and neoliberalism is a a new word, at least in my lexicon, and I think generally in the cultural lexicon. Yeah, well, so neoliberalism—the easiest way to think about it—is as Reaganism or Thatcherism, um, which is the privatization. Uh, of former public goods, so the privatization of gas, water, steel, airlines, you name it. In the UK, almost every previously public um, industry was privatized, um, eventually floated on the stock market, etc., etc. So uh, firstly, it's the marketization of industry or, or public service that the market should govern. I mean, its origins are in Frederick Hayek and a few other uh, Austrian thinkers who who uh, believe that socialism or anything approaching so socialism or any form of kind of state managed economy whether that's welfare capitalism was uh, a severe threat to individual flourishing so they they privileged uh, the individual and they felt that the best place for the individual to flourish is the market but the consequences of that are that um, from privatizing uh, public services you now have almost all areas of life are subject to kind of market logics or to a kind of logic of the metric of measurement. So that could be in terms of dating or in terms of university education, uh, where everything is, you know, driven towards some kind of end of uh, investment, right? Everything has to be viewed under the lens of what's this worth? For example, reading a book is no longer valuable in itself. You know, what's it going to give me? What's it going to do for me? What's it going to add to my CV? How's this going to make me a better form of human capital? So, you know, who should I date? Should I date this person? This What, what will this do for me? <laughs> Every, everything's become instrumentalized. And, and you would argue that these cultural institutions like the New York Times – broadly fit within this sort of rough category. I don't, I don't know about the New York Times. What I'd say about the New York Times and others, and I'd, I'd include the the Guardian in, in this, is that they are liberal in the philosophical sense, you know, political liberals, not not in the American sense where you, you distinguish liberal and conservative, but liberals as in endorsing traditional political liberalism, which is the, you know, the philosophy that comes from John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and up through Mill and through others, 
which is, um, I would say, is the basic political common sense of our culture, both the UK and the US. I think the UK and the US have been liberal since, you know, since, well, America since 1776. I mean, I think the Constitution is a, one of the great documents of liberalism. And I think there's a lot to be said for liberalism. But in its foundings, liberalism was uh, exclusionary, excluded indigenous people and excluded black people. And white supremacy is the kind of political system that never gets named. But white supremacy in the US has dominated US politics. And in the UK, it's a form of colonialism and kind of post-colonialism. You know, the UK has a uh, the UK's liberalism is inextricably linked to colonialism. And so the empire was built through a narrative of promoting the UK as a place for freedom and flourishing and civilization. But this was on the backs of the economic exploitation and political exploitation of all the colonized nations. And American, this isn't even my argument, right? This, I should say this is Aziz Rana wrote an amazing book called Two. He's an American academic. I think he's at Cornell. He wrote this great book. I think it's called The Dual Faces of Freedom. And he's saying, you know, American freedom is great, right? There is, it is it's one of the great inventions of, uh, of human society that, that, that America has enabled people to be truly free. But that freedom has always been for a select group of people. And Yes, certain groups of people have managed to enter into that fold, if you like, through campaigning and partly thanks to free speech, you know, as you say, suffragettes and the civil rights movement. But it's still going on. It's still exclusionary. So I, I so to, this is a very long version. So I would say that the New York Times and CNN, they claim to be kind of just neutral, but they don't interrogate the the kind of liberalism that underlies everything they do and as i was saying right at the beginning this fails to address deeper structural forms of oppression and uh inequality so would you say that you're a uh marcusian and and i i we've talked about him a little bit on the podcast before yeah. but he he wrote his critique of pure tolerance yeah uh, and from what i can hear you say thus far i don't think you would go as far as um, herbert marcuse because he seems to suggest that the laws should change in in the direction of what he calls repressive tolerance mm. i just kind of want to get your sense of of where you fit in in that philosophical tradition if at all yeah uh I have to confess, I haven't properly read Repressive Tolerance by Marcuse. I mean, I know it and I'm familiar with it and I probably should read it properly. I've sort of skim read it. I, I, no, so I wouldn't say I'm Marcusean precisely because I haven't properly uh, engaged with his work. Yeah, well, we can pivot would, away from I, that I, if I you don't feel... I would say, broadly speaking, you know, would... would or the Frankfurt want, School. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of sympathy for the Frankfurt School. I've got a lot of sympathy for Adorno's critique of the culture industry and for... Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's Adorno or and possibly Marcuse, I don't know, but Adorno certainly uh, is interested in, in the flourishing of individuals, but it's all wedded to a social critique. So Adorno sees capitalism as an all-pervasive kind of ideology that incorporates us and uh, in such a powerful way that when we think we are choosing something, we are kind of under an illusion. I mean, it's much more sophisticated than that. Yeah, of course. But yeah, I am sympathetic. I mean, you know, the label cultural Marxism that's, that's thrown around, that's largely a quite specious label. But I, 
I, I don't necessarily have a problem being associated with some of the things that cultural Marxism is accused of, you know, wanting to get rid of God, for example. I don't have a problem with that. Um, you know, God is a sort of structuring tool in society. I don't, I don't have a problem with God as a, as a form of individual belief. You know, if people want to believe in God, great. I'm not, I'm not a supporter of the new, new atheists. So I, I think, um, but yeah, I shouldn't have gone into cultural Marxism. I think it's not that helpful. I would say, yeah, if I'm, I believe in socialism, basically. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about John Stuart Mill for a second, okay. because in, in your essay, uh, you critique how John Stuart Mill is used in this cultural dialogue yeah. surrounding yeah. free speech. And I'll just quote a second here from uh, your essay. You say that John Stuart Mill is so often called upon to support such a free speech defense is questionable at best. Uh, Mill sought to attack existing social arrangements, whereas today's free speechers seek to defend and preserve them. Mill considered diversity central to social progress, whereas many of his supposed heirs promote fanciful notions of homogeneity. Mill was concerned with the oppressive nature of public opinion. He challenged dogma, stale arguments, and calcified points of view. He challenged custom described as nature. And my reading that, I agreed with almost everything you just laid out there about Mill. He was one of the early campaigners uh, for women's rights. But at the same time, I don't think that negates his arguments in favor of free speech, nor would, is it easy to presume that he would perhaps take your approach in viewing free speech today? There are many people for whom I think they have good ideas, uh, but they have more sordid pasts or they have... They have bad ideas, but their paths are good. So I, I just want to see how what we actually draw from that critique in the context of what it actually means for free speech as a principle. I mean, okay, free speech is the simplest way I could put this is to say free speech is a great principle, but we need to work on equality first. Free speech only functions properly if society is equal. Now, that might sound utopian, right? So I just said that, look, I probably would consider myself a socialist, but don't ask me how to, you know, to, to spell that out in terms of what yeah. it means practically, and I can't see it in the future. But what it means to me is that equality at the moment in these particular conditions needs to be privileged over freedom, right? So, it, and this is why I would want to put all these arguments in a case-by-case basis. Of course, if you're subject to a kind of an oppressive regime, if you're under a kind of um, authoritarian communist regime in, in the Soviet Union or in East Germany, or in, of course, freedom's vital. And I under, completely understand why freedom of speech and why freedom as a, as a kind of slogan, uh, not even a slogan, as an ideal to strive for was was what was emphasized the most by the people trying to kind of by distance and people trying to critique the system that completely made sense but we we're, we're not subject to that regime at the moment we're subject to a, a regime of uh extreme freedom for certain groups of people and therefore i think what needs to be done is to balance that out with an argument for equality and it's not that i'm thinking principle equality is better than freedom but i'm saying in this society where there is such gross inequality then what we need to promote are narratives and arguments and cases for equality. And that might involve some kind of structural meddling. It might involve speech codes here and there. It might involve affirmative action. It might involve a whole set of other things because until we've got equality, freedom of speech doesn't mean much. If it's only free for some people, if only certain people have a platform, if only certain people are heard, then what use is freedom of speech? 
right? So that's that's my main argument. Let's just change the way we're talking about it. We can't keep defending it as a principle if we're ignoring the reality for vast groups of people. And by groups of people, I mean, you know, entire uh, identities, right? You know. So we need to make society more equal. Yeah. And equality is a laudable goal. Yeah. And I will never disagree yeah. with you on that. But I think I, I would disagree in the approach or the tactics to get there. Because when I think about power, I think about those who wield it. Maybe I privilege too much institutions and who's in control of those institutions. But in order to achieve this equality, and if you think about it in the free speech realm uh, or any other realm, you, you know, you need to have someone, you need to have someone pulling the levers to make it possible. And I just don't know that there's any person with whom I would entrust the power to restrict my freedoms. How do you, how do you ever know when you've reached perfect equality? I mean, it does seem sort of like an utopian goal to me and one that can only be achieved in certain respects through repression by those in power. And, and those in power here in the United States right now are people like Donald Trump, people who, who I assume I would not support. You wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, even, even if it was, even if it was the perfect angel, yeah. um, mortal angel, none of us are immortal and they will have successors and those successors will have the same access to power that their predecessors yeah, but did. The true idea of democracy is that the people in power are just representing the interests of the, of the people, right? So if you believe in democracy, then the institutions that are managing the state, for example, and managing the laws, well, they are just there. The, the people in charge of those institutions are there because they have, have a mandate from the people. The fact that our democracy is kind of screwed is the problem. But if we had a radical democracy, if we had an actual functioning democracy where the public had a say in all sorts of things and where they were genuinely informed, we had an informed citizenry, not people subject to just endless propaganda um which is like which is what i think the media um for the most part produce i don't think they produce much kind of i think this is where paradoxically trump is kind of onto something with fake news the fact that tr trump uses fake news as a tool to deflect critique of him which is which is propagandistic in itself but actually you know people on the left have been arguing that the news is a very at best biased and at worst, you know, completely manufactured form of um, propaganda or ideology for years. They've been, you know, Chomsky wrote Manufacturing Consent back in 1984 or something. So, so you know, democracy isn't functioning if you don't have uh, a, a, a properly functioning media and you don't have a pro properly informed citizenry where politics operates according to all sorts of uh, you know, pack, super packs or whatever, you know, that, that that's just, you know, the fact that Citizens United, for example, the fact that um, corporations can, can function as citizens, as citizens in the States just seems bizarre to me. Well, uh, we, we could go down the rabbit hole of campaign, campaign finance, financing, et cetera, but, yeah. but I mean, it, to me, had that particular decision gone the other way, it would have meant that you can't make a movie about a politician something like six months before an election. Okay. That just seems to me like, because the, the question there was, there was a corporation, which, uh, you know, is of course an amalgamation of, of people, um, often organizing around a certain mission or ideology. And in this case, it was um, 
it was the organization Citizens United who were opposed to Hillary Clinton, and they made a documentary about her politics. And uh, the government, through its campaign finance rules, tried to say that you can't make that movie. And and the principle there, if it was upheld in the Supreme Court, would have extended to the New York Times, which is a corporation, and it would have prohibited them from writing editorials in support of this candidate or against that candidate. So, I mean, we that 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 case gets a lot of flack uh, because it seems it, it uh, people argue that it weaponizes the first amendment and grants corporations certain rights but i just don't see any way around it if we want organizations like amnesty international or greenpeace or the aclu to be able to have a voice in our political process there's no other okay and that, sort and that of, would be great in an equal society but if the most powerful you know if a big corporation has a lot more power than amnesty or greenpeace then we are not operating in a in a, in a marketplace of ideas let alone a kind of f- uh, fair playing field well isn't that the the brilliant insight of the bill of rights is you know we're not a perfect democracy uh de- the vote protects the uh the voice of the majority but it's bounded by the rights protected in the Bill of Rights for the individual. And in some cases, there are, there are protections for groups like the right to assemble. Uh, but those, those rights protect the minority, the minority of one. They're neutral principles that should and are not always enforced on a, on a viewpoint neutral basis. Yeah, but if the individual is normalized as a white, property-owning, straight man, then that's a problem, right? This is the, the yes. yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to defend the uh, the early draft of the Constitution that that you know yeah, didn't but, recognize but the right to. The things have. I mean, they've changed a great deal, but there is still there are still gross and great structural inequalities, and they are also discursive inequalities. That are discursive meaning in the way in which language normalizes certain individuals over others. So this notion of invoking the individual is great in an ideal society, but we don't live in it. Neither you nor I live in an ideal society. We live in a society structured by gross inequalities, both economic and political. Yeah, I guess I just don't see, one, what you can do until we get to that point, and two, how you even get to a, and maybe we have different definitions yeah. of equality. My, my, my thought is mostly equality under the law, but I know that you place a great emphasis on the cultural concerns. But when I think of perfect equality, I think of Kurt Vonnegut's essay, Harrison Bergeron, in which you know certain people uh, who are really smart have a buzzing in their ear, so they're not as smart. Uh, or you know, people who are super athletic have weights attached to their feet. And I know that's not the equality you're talking about, but there's... we. That's the recognition of equality under the law is that nobody's born with talents in every in, in every field, but we should recognize, despite the inequalities that we're born with, that everyone should be treated equally by the government. And that's what I hope the First Amendment does. And I and it doesn't sound like you disagree I don't, with that I don't disagree with that, that but the issue isn't just with the government. Again, this is why, for me, the argument about free speech always being about protecting us from the government. I mean, I don't the government is the least of our worries in, in, to, a, to a large extent, right? The, the, you know, corporations are very powerful, but also other groups in society are very powerful. Other individuals are very powerful. So I don't think this battle around free speech is purely to do with the government. I'm obviously very sympathetic to the idea that um, the government should be held to account and that I don't think the government, especially the kind of ruling governments of the current 
moment should have great power. But I, I, so I am arguing in a kind of slightly more idealistic plane, which is, well, if you want free speech to function, then you need a functioning democracy, and you need to have greater equality. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to come up with a set of kind of practical suggestions for how equality would be achieved. I'm saying it's something we should aim for. So again, kind of going back to my earlier point, it's about trying to shift the narrative. It's about trying to just, it's a recognition or it's calling for a recognition of the fact that the narrative around free speech in the mainstream media is neither doing a service to you, to FIRE, and to the kind of work that FIRE is doing, and nor is it really doing a service to how free speech should and could function. What it tends to be doing is serving vested interests. At worst, it's serving kind of far-right opportunists and demagogues um, who, you know, like Tommy Robinson, I mean, I didn't actually finish speaking about Tommy Robinson, but, you know, why is he invited to Columbia at the first place? Why, 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 why is he invited to the Oxford Union? Why are these institutions why are some of these people on the bbc right the bbc is having interviews with marina pen and all of these people they wouldn't have 10 years ago why and now you could say well look if we hear their views then they're more likely to um um dissipate you know sunlight is the best disinfectant well that hasn't worked well it worked with milo yiannopoulos i mean it seems no, that's like that's a very specific case you know, of what he he disclosed that's not because of his ideas that's because he disclosed a particular thing that happened to him when he was younger i mean i i but we let but we let him talk and he seemed to defend penderdasties and uh that was i guess i guess you could say it was a bridge too far and yeah. i and i definitely would but i mean you might argue that it, the bridge too far happened far before that but it was free speech allowing him to air his yeah. views that but, but eventually let's recognize was his there's a bridge right and so there are this this is precisely my point there are limits of what's acceptable we would all i hope argue that pedophilia is wrong and that there shouldn't be images of you know, this is a very obvious example to use in events of censorship, but the, surely there are things that need to be censored. And if you agree that there are some things that need to be censored, then you can't make the case for free speech absolutism, right? Well, I don't know that I would have censored my lawyer. No, but you would censor. I think you would censor images of underage children, surely, naked images. Oh yeah, right? of course. So you accept and, and of limits. course, and that, but the. But that, but that, that limit stems from an underlying crime, which is you can't take pictures of underage children, and and also they can't provide the consent that would be even necessary, even if they were adults. So you know, there's an underlying crime at play in there. Okay, so you, but you don't ex- accept that there are limits uh, that are less egregious than that. There are there are limits about how one would, you know, take a really innocent example about how one would speak if one was on TV and you wouldn't use uh, in swear words, you wouldn't use F-bombs, for example, right? Now you could say, well, I'm being censored, but I'm on a, I'm on a morning TV show with, with Oprah or <laughs> I don't know who, Ellen Gennaro, you know. Well, the, uh, but the, the, the First Amendment and, and free speech when we're talking about the culture yeah. is a very dynamic philosophy and the BBC and uh, well the BBC is unique because it's a semi-governmental institution but let's let's talk about uh, CNN for example yeah. they have editorial discretion as to what they will or will not yeah. allow 
on their platform as a private institution. And that same thing goes for Facebook. Uh, Facebook is a private institution. And while I might disagree with how they implement their speech codes, they, they do have editorial control with what can exist there. My, my main concern, of course, is with government wielding that power and privileging certain viewpoints over others. But I do, I do, I, I don't want to dismiss the idea that I have a cultural concern too about what happens when we don't allow people to be who they are and speak their minds. Okay, so let's go back to that. You said that some of your friends or people you knew in the Midwest, in Illinois, etc., said that they were too, they felt afraid to speak up or to to express their real issues because they, they don't see themselves as racist, but they wanted to, you know, um, express some kind of views about immigration, for example, or now, a, I'm not sure that one gets to determine whether you're racist or not. <laughs> like, it's not your choice. I can't say, you know, saying I'm not racist. That's the that's the classic racist move. I'm not racist, but um, so you know, and I'm not saying that these people are or are not. But it's not up to them to determine whether they are. If they say racist things or think racist thoughts or do racist carry out racist actions, they, that makes them racist, whether they want to be or not, right? So, but but more but more importantly. What is it? What makes them think that immigration is a problem? You know, have these people in the Midwest or have the people in the UK, for example, gone out and done the research? Or have they been fed certain narratives from the media that have put into their minds this idea that immigrants, for example, are taking all of their jobs or that immigrants are a strain on the national economy or immigrants are, you know, uh, taking advantage of our national health service in the, the, right i doubt very much that people actually know this these are narratives that have been manufactured by the media so i don't I well don't... let's so let's say i grant you everything every single thing you just said yeah. my my question is how do you overcome that narrative you allow people to speak up either with their facts or with their prejudices and we we sort it all out. I mean, I think the problem here is that there was a quote unquote correct opinion that those who held cultural power said one must have. And if you did not have that, your voice isn't allowed on campus. It's not allowed uh, on CNN. It's not allowed in the pages of the New York Times. And so people just decided, well, I'm, you know, why, what, you know, I hold an incorrect opinion. What's the point of me speaking up anyway. So they go to the ballot box and that's kind of the exhaust valve. But, that, but it's not like it's only the New York times or the CNN or, or as, as media outlets. I mean, there's a whole spectrum in the U S right. So, yeah. So, yeah. And you have so places why do they like feel that they're being oppressed by this kind of, let's just say that there are this, there's this culturally dominant, slightly leftist or liberal, um, politically correct set of values and ways of speaking that dominates. But, it really is it really that dominant in America? Well, well, in America, you see most of the free speech conversation surrounding college campuses. Yeah. Now, there's a free press conversation that's happening in the country right now surrounding the Trump administration. Yeah. But on college campuses, you do see, for example, people who are opposed to affirmative action or people yeah. who are for stronger immigration. Uh, yeah, and they feel silenced. Even you know anything, anything short of like abolishing ICE is considered, yeah. uh, in some cases, you know, a form of racism. Yeah, and they feel they feel silenced. Now, you and I can have a debate as to whether that's justified or not, but they're, 
Actually, you know, I will say there are cases where you do see people getting made, who make these arguments who are subject to disinvitations or yeah. disinvitations attempts yeah. or, you know, or who, who can't tape, do their affirmative action bake sale yeah. on campus. So it, it does come from somewhere. And I think in the United States, one of the biggest applause lines Trump ever got was when he was speaking at Ohio and he said uh, he was going to defeat censorship on campus, which I kind of rolled my eyes at. But he was visibly, if you see the video, taken aback by the amount of applause really? he got. I don't think he has any remote idea as to what's happening on campus. Uh, but that seems to be where conservatives don't have cultural capital. And that seems to be where the free speech fights are happening. And I can't say they're without merit because we certainly do see censorship on college campuses. Yeah. And I, and I want, don't want to say it's exclusively conservative. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can circle back here and, and talk about whether the um, concentrating on the culture war speech debates is actually very representative of what happens on campus. But I, you know, I, anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying I, I, I think they do have at least some argument when it comes to college I, I, I mean, no doubt. And certainly uh, some of the students that I teach here in the UK do claim that there is a kind of, um, you know, an unwritten set of uh, boundaries about what's acceptable and what's not and some would want to express views that they feel that if they did they would be possibly vilified what i would say to that is but those views that there are plenty other spaces uh to express those views that those views are those of the mainstream those views are the views of the daily mail newspaper which in the uk is huge you know it's one of the biggest selling newspapers or it's the most viewed on the internet you know it gets millions of viewers that you know the, to make an argument against immigration or the, it's a very common argument so yeah okay let's say the university is a, a left space but i'd rather think of it as a critical space right I, it's a well, then, then shouldn't they be what's going on in society so yes it's trying to counter the dominant set of narratives and values and arguments that are being propagated by the powerful by the mass media by the uh, corporate elite right so yeah the university and you know thank you to fire for defending academic freedom the academic freedom is there to be critical of what's going on in the mainstream and if the mainstream is more right-leaning or more centrist then it kind of makes sense that a university might be a space that is left but purely because it's critical so if the if the political climate changed uh in the mainstream i would assume that the university would change well i would think that the university being a critical institution would welcome these arguments, would welcome these challenges as a place. Well, we do welcome where the critique can can happen. I don't I don't know that it's necessarily the mission of a university to take a position on every issue and then counter them, as you said. We, we look, we do welcome debate, but one of the problems is these arguments have been made for years. So, okay, maybe there's a bit of impatience, but the argument. I mean, we could think of the Charles Murray case in the States, but we could think of the the case here in, I think it was Oxford, a, a professor, he's called Nigel Bigger, wanted to kind of start an institute that was trying to, in his view, uh, take a more balanced look at colonialism. Now, I would argue, and others would argue, we don't need a more balanced look at colonialism. We need to be critical of colonialism, right? There, there was enough promotion of colonialism for the last 150 years there is enough literature out there promoting colonialism what we need is to counter that we need you know so this this argument that somehow we need to hear more voices that 
speak to the good things that Britain did uh, while it was colonizing over half the world. It is it, no, we've heard that it's over. The argument's over. You know, the, the isn't the best way to critique an argument to first present that argument and then and present it in the most charitable way possible. Well, because, then, but again, it's, this is a structural it. thing because this is to do with funding. This is to do with, you know, this is why campuses are attacked in the US, right? Because it, the campuses do have power, right? It's to do with structure. So it's symbolically someone getting a, and I, I don't know if it was an institute or funding or what, or a journal, but someone getting these kind of uh, support has to be challenged. We don't, we don't need to, there are some arguments we don't need to hear anymore. You know, the argument against racism has been made. We don't need to hear any more arguments about it. Do you not think? I mean, surely there's... Well, well, Mill would argue no, I think the kind of our notion of human progress. This is the point of free speech. We can have the argument. We're done. We've worked out what's wrong. See you later. We don't need to keep revisiting. We shouldn't have to keep making the argument as to why racism's wrong. Well, Mill also talked about the fatal tendency of mankind being to leave off thinking about a thing when it is no longer doubtful. He calls it the deep slumber yeah. of a decided opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the 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 learner and the teacher go to sleep when there's no enemy in the field. That's, That's another Mill quote. I, yeah. And I, I think it's important to have that enemy and to be confident in your ideas and to challenge them. We're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds here, uh, some of whom might not have any opinions on these issues. They hear them in the mainstream media. They regurgitate them in your classroom. I think we should be charitable with them, kind to them. You're a very um, compelling speaker and a compelling writer. I, I mean, I was very struck by your prose in that essay. You know, I have no doubt that facts will win out in the end when you, well, I hope, <laughs> if, if, but if, if all the, if, if we have a, a neutral playing field here, uh, here on, on campus and we allow these ideas to be heard, interpreted charitably and then defeated. We, we, yeah, sure. We want to challenge students. We do, but I don't think it's challenging students to hear retrograde ideas. You know, there are new ideas. There are new forms of critique. There are developments well, within it, particular particular disciplines that we can focus on we don't need to hear stale old dogmatic arguments about biological racism for example i mean i don't even know what charles murray's shtick is he wrote the bell curve he said something along the lines that what that that it's genetically the case that white people are intellectually more advanced than black i mean is that his i think i haven't read his book but i think his argument is generally that there are disparate uh, there are differences in iq across groups yeah. um, but the the greatest differences come within those groups and among individuals i, I you know i don't want to defend his book or uh or but should he be given a claim to know exactly should he, i mean to the extent his book is a bestseller people buy into it i think the university is the best place to litigate those ideas. I mean, it's the place where you you hope that institutional disconfirmation can occur. And institutional disconfirmation is this idea that, uh, you know, an idea gets presented and you have systems and processes within the university that ensure that these aren't just dogmatic arguments that are going to be made, but there will always be challenged because that's how we we push knowledge forward. And I, and I know, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we, we shouldn't have to relitigate whether racism is okay. I'm totally sympathetic to that. But I also understand the history here in the United States that that same argument 
was made on campuses in the 1950s and 60s about communism. And it was the, the impetus for throwing people out of um, professorships, for expelling students. You saw the huge expulsion within the uh, movie industry here. I mean, it was taken for granted in the same way a lot of this stuff is taken for granted, that these ideas were bad. And I, I think cultural Marxism, the Frankfurter School, a lot of these had very valuable things to add to the academy, and the academy was worse off for not engaging with those ideas. Yeah, but the, but the difference there was that, that, okay, that's broadly speaking McCarthyism, and that was the government that's in power. But what's happening today is that the campus is a counterweight, surely, to the government. The campus is, you know, it's a kind of form of checks and balances. So the, well, in, in the 1950s, you know, Harvard was getting rid of hosting tribunals and getting yeah, rid of... Yeah, but they of, were on the side of the government. That's what I mean. I'm saying that, you know, it was all on one side. Everything was stacked on one side. So I don't see the fear around what's going on in the campus. I would see the fear if, if you know, the kind of politics of the campus was shared by the politics of the US government. But that isn't the case. So they're in, they're in dialogue. I mean... I mean, in a very loose sense, they're in dialogue, but there isn't this kind of monolithic anti, anti-communist, for example, set of but, power structures. But that doesn't mean that that will always be the case on campus. If you allow the principle that there are certain ideas that are just beyond dispute to take hold on campus, today, yeah, we might love the ideas that have taken hold. But tomorrow, let's say Trump is in uh, power for another four years and his administration has more influence. I mean, it could go the other way and we could be talking about how the idea that climate change is man-made uh, is just de facto not true. Yeah, uh, I mean, that could, that, could, that, that could conceivably happen sometime in the future, but it's less likely to happen if you allow for this institutional disconfirmation, if you have a culture that allows minority viewpoints to be presented and you can always count on them to be challenged. But I, and I think that's what the role of a university. I mean, that's, that's kind of the ethos that fire takes. And uh, we recognize that not everyone would agree with that, but, you know, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, well, I'm honest when I say that's what I believe. I think, I think again, you know, in principle, I agree. And in principle and in practice, in fact, what FIRE's doing in terms of defending particular cases on campus of infringements of free speech is great and admirable. And, you know, we should be very grateful for that. Or people in the state should be very grateful for what, for what you're doing. But it doesn't address other issues that need to be addressed, right? And I think that from my understanding, campus politics or the campus activism or attempts by students to challenge certain um, forms of oppression that they think exist this is critique this is not this is different to uh, trying to establish the kind of law of the land right they, they are coming from a position of critique now that doesn't address the kind of speech codes that are uh, come from top down from the from the kind of institution right that that is a whole separate issue and there I'm kind of much more sympathetic to to you guys but in terms of students and in terms of the student voices well I just don't think they are as powerful as they're portrayed to be in the media you know the famous article I'm a liberal professor and I'm terrified of my students or the, th the stuff that Jonathan Haidt and, and Greg Lukianov talk about in the coddling of American mind I mean they portray students as these or not just them a whole load of them they use words like authoritarian fascist McCarthyite the, there's this kind of apocalyptic 
exaggerated language to describe students. And students are not that powerful. I just don't see it. I don't see, I don't understand this terror of students. They are not Bill Gates. They are not these giant corporations, right? They are trying to just redress the balance. They are trying to challenge norms that in their view and in my view are historically oppressive. And that, that's exactly what Mill was about, right? It's like, let's break down customs. We assume, he wrote in the 19th century, that women can or can't do this. And he says, this has just come about through custom. And don't tell me it's natural because nature is just to come about because of custom. And I think that's what the students are mostly doing. They're trying to establish things that seem normal, but are in fact deeply uh, culturally constructed. What would you say that there are certain tactics that students take that can justifiably be called authoritarianism to the extent, for example, at Evergreen State College, they wouldn't let the president leave a room or they take over a classroom at Reed College or they get profess they petition to get professors fired and in some cases successfully disciplined I mean, for not ha- having a having a trigger warning for so something that they said in class yeah. that was that's I mean you must possible. be sympathetic to that in a, in, in a certain extent because you you live in the classroom yeah. you're, I mean, you're, you're, I, look, it, that's all very possible and I I could well imagine that were I to be sort of shipped over to the states tomorrow and start teaching a class I'd be terrified and horrified myself but and, and that I might well agree with some of these narratives about students and the, their kind of authoritarian tactics. However, I would want to take a longer view and try and understand why it is that they feel that they having to use these kind of tactics, right? And I, I would assume that if they haven't been heard or if the kind of, you know, people usually resort to extremes because the other tactics they use didn't work. So I'm assuming that students didn't get heard, right? You only start shouting if you, if people don't listen to you. Well, that that presumes that everything the students ask for or argue has merit. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, 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 possible that it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, of course, goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. We need to look at this on a case by case basis. But I realize that, I, you know, I've kept you a little bit longer than the hour. So I, I want to close by just presenting something that I think you and I can agree upon. Yeah. Uh, I'm dismayed in the way that free speech has become a culture war issue yeah. um, and, and has really minimized the cases of censorship that occur on campus, and that's what I know best because that's where I work, uh, that don't fit a culture war narrative. For example, you don't see headlines written about students at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute that are protesting the university's takeover of the student-run union or the case at Northern Michigan University, which threatened students with suspension and expulsion if they talked with their fellow students about their depression or thoughts of self-harm. Or the case at the University of North Alabama, which bars staff members and students from speaking with the press. Or the student at Cal Poly Pomona who passes out um, PETA flyers and is told that he uh, will be punished if he does so outside of the free speech zone. I mean, these don't fit into any culture war narrative but are just as much an infringement on someone's rights, and they get lost when we make free speech a culture war debate. So I think there's something there for media to look critically at, and for us as those of us who value sort of like the principle of free speech to try and amplify. They amplify these stories, which if you go through our case archive at FIRE, I mean, 
maybe half, maybe just slightly less than half, fit no political narrative whatsoever. And they're the ones that don't get the attention. I, I completely agree with that. And I, and I would advise any uh, you know listener to read the cases on fire because I think that that is a much more nuanced and a much more illuminating narrative of some of the things that are going on on campuses, right? I mean, it's it hasn't been uh, selected. It's not. It's not. You know, it's not taking one anecdote and trying to build a more general narrative about campus free speech crisis. This is this is a. It, I think reading those cases is is everyone should do it. Anyone who's ever written an article about free speech on campus should be forced to read all of those cases on the fire website. So I completely. I, I agree with that, and I I completely agree. Um, you know that the narrative needs to be shifted. Um, who's responsible for that though? This you know who has an investment in this narrative? And I think you know not only should um, the media and uh, cultural commentators uh, take a more nuanced look at the actual cases of free speech infringement on university campuses by engaging with the work that Fire is doing. But I also think there needs to be more said about the reality of student life on campus and the kind of diversity of student life, right? That, that for example, students aren't all these kind of privileged activists at uh, uh, high-end schools like Yale, but there are many of them are working two, three, four jobs. Some students are working through the night. Students are exhausted. Students are under pressure. Students are in debt. Students are suffering from grave mental health crises you know there's a whole set of other stories about students that just don't get heard um and i will say i i work in the communications department so i work with journalists a lot and there have been times where i've pitched publications uh stories and those publications will remain unnamed where they said yeah this is a good story but the institution doesn't have the name recognition that we'd want to write a story about it you know next time you have a case at harvard or yale let us know yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and we have a case, right? right? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very depressing. And in that sense, I think your critique of the media is, is fair. Um, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, what can we expect with your book? Anything else uh, you kind of want to plug here before we tune out? No, well, I just hope I get the book done. The book won't be out until next uh, November, probably. Um, but no, it's been a real pleasure. Um you know, I think more kind of conversations like this, the better. I mean, you know, one of the odd things about starting to write this book where I was initially kind of very critical of the way free speech was used is that the more you read into it, the more you start to appreciate the value of free speech. So I'm I'm still very much have a, an ambivalent position. Um, so, you know, engaging with, with the Cato Institute and speaking to you and, and reading more widely is a really uh, useful exercise. So I'd advise anyone who has a kind of fixed position to just, uh, you know, engage in dialogue. Well, I tell you what, when the book comes out, please do get back in touch. And uh, we organize talks on campus. We're often asked to participate in talks where they ask us who else should be invited. Uh, Let me know. We'd love to have you here in the United States to gauge and more of these dialogues publicly. So Anthony Laker, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I look forward to the next time we get a chance to talk. That was Anthony Leaker. He is a principal lecturer in the School of Humanities at the University of Brighton in the UK, and he is also the author of the Cato Institute essay Against Free Speech, which will be expanded into a book by the same name, which should hopefully be available sometime next year. 
You can find a link to Anthony's essay along with the other essays in the Cato Institute's Cato Unbound essay series about international free speech in this episode's show notes. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about this podcast by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Reviews, as always, help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I want to wish you all a happy new year and we'll see you in 2019.